The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way, passage by passage, through the book of 1 Peter. And today, the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thanks, Shane. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with all kinds of needs this morning that are represented in this room. But we believe that by your spirit and through your word that you can minister to every need that we have. So please do that, Lord. And above all, draw us into a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name And as we just sung, for the glory of his name that we pray, amen. One of the most uh, fundamental desires that people have is a desire for significance. We want our lives basically to count for something and to feel like we really matter in the grand scheme of things. In fact, I think we could even say that assuming all of our physical needs are met, that this search for significance is often what ends up defining us. And there are a wide variety of things that people often look to in their search for significance. Many look to their careers in order to feel significant. They live as though their worth as a person is directly tied to their professional achievements. Others try to find significance in a romantic relationship or by accumulating money or material possessions or by being physically attractive or by having a large following on social media or by engaging in various creative or artistic pursuits or, and this seems to be a bigger and bigger one nowadays, through political activism. Or maybe someone directs their focus toward their children in their own search for significance and tries to live vicariously through their children's achievements. A couple of weeks ago, my family went to the uh, Children's Museum, and uh, we, there was a, a piano in one of the lobbies there. And we saw these two young kids, I'm guessing maybe ages five and six, uh, brother and sister, playing the piano. It was just open for anyone who wanted to play it to do so, and so that's what they were doing. And, you know, I've never seen in my entire life any child 
play the piano, uh, at least not live and in person, as well as these two children did. I mean, it really was the kind of talent you would expect to see on TV or some YouTube video with millions of views. And not surprisingly, everyone in the lobby was just riveted by their performance. And people all around there were taking pictures and videos of these two young prodigies playing the piano. It, It really was remarkable. Yet after these young children had finished playing a couple of songs, the mother took the little girl aside and began to scold her for several minutes. I'm not sure exactly what the mother said, but it was very evident that she was quite unhappy with her daughter's performance, and I guess was giving a detailed critique of what her daughter did wrong. And uh, the little girl, again, about five years old, she was just like standing there at attention, just very dutifully uh, listening to her mother's critique. And, uh, you know, I obviously don't know that mother's heart. I don't have a spiritual x-ray machine. Uh, But it would seem that that would be an example of the fact that people are searching for significance, right? Sometimes through their own lives directly, and other times through their children and their children's achievements. So again, the search for significance is often what ends up defining us and being what our entire lives center around, many times to our detriment, unfortunately, or that of our children. And uh, To be clear, I don't think it's wrong that we want our lives to be significant. The problem is that we often search for significance in the wrong things and in the wrong way. As a result, we inevitably come up empty. Even if we find a measure of significance in various earthly things, you know, there always seems to be something lacking. We always seem to come up short. Not only that, any sense of significance that we do manage to experience from earthly things is incredibly fragile and short-lived. Careers inevitably end. Relationships can sometimes turn sour. Possessions wear out. Physical beauty fades away. Political movements fail, and children sometimes rebel, especially if we're putting an unhealthy amount of pressure on them. And so anytime we try to find our ultimate sense of significance in these earthly things, we're going to be disappointed. However, there is a place where we can find significance and not be disappointed, and that is in a relationship With God. The significance we find in a relationship with God is immeasurably deeper and more durable and secure than any sense of significance that we get from earthly things. And so true significance is found not in ourselves and what we achieve, but rather in God and in God's love for us. And as we're going to see today, in the various privileges and blessings that God imparts to us. And that does lead us to what we find here in our main passage of 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that we looked at verses 4 through 8 and explored 
several magnificent privileges Peter mentioned. And we see more of the same here in verses 9 and 10. So this week's message really is part two of last week's message. And just like last week, the main idea that you can see up there is that Christians enjoy incomparable privileges in and through Jesus. Again, Christians enjoy incomparable privileges in and through Jesus. And these privileges are what give our lives meaning and significance. So let's look at what Peter says here. Uh, Remember, he's writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus and who could really use some encouragement. And so Peter reminds them in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't those privileges sound magnificent? I mean, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Looking at the first of those four privileges, a chosen race is a reference to the fact that God's chosen us to be his own. At the very beginning of 1 Peter, Peter referred to his readers as elect, uh, meaning that God had elected them or chosen them for himself and for all the privileges and blessings they enjoyed. And now we find that same concept again here in chapter 2. And this phrase, a chosen race, is actually one that's rooted in God's description of his people Israel back in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Moses publicly declared to the Israelites, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, here it is, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. So God's choice of the Israelites had nothing to do with their uh, impressiveness or merit or worthiness of any kind, right? Instead, we read in verse 8, if you advance the slide to verse 8, that God chose them not because of who they were, but because of who he is, because of his love for them and his faithfulness to the promise that, that he had made to their forefathers. So in a similar way, We're told in numerous places throughout the New Testament, such as Romans 9 and Acts 13, 48, that God's choice of individuals today uh, to be among his people and to be the recipients of his saving grace isn't based on anything in them, such as personal worthiness, but instead solely on his own sovereign will and in his undeserved Favor, his undeserved love toward them. And I'll tell you what, I'm not sure 
that there is any doctrine in the Bible that crushes human pride as much as the doctrine of election. The, the truth that God simply chose us because of his unmerited mercy rather than because of anything good in us is a truth that just takes a wrecking ball to our pride. It humbles us by reminding us of how unworthy we are of anything better than hell, to be completely honest, and simultaneously exalts God by shining the spotlight on his mercy and love and grace. It's also a doctrine that gives us immense comfort since we know that God never changes and therefore that his sovereign will won't ever change. So that means our eternal future in heaven is secure because it rests not on our own fickle will, but rather on our unchanging God. And then moving forward, as we look at the next three privileges Peter lists in our main passage, we discover that these privileges also have very clear roots in the Old Testament. Uh, Not only do we find similar language in Deuteronomy 7 that we already looked at, but we find phrases that are even more similar in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Right before God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, he says to them through Moses, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice the phrases, treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. These three phrases in Exodus are virtually identical to the next three phrases Peter uses to describe the privileges Christians enjoy. And so Peter essentially takes what's said of Israel and applies it to the church. That's what he's doing here. In verse 9, he calls them a royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood is something we touched on last week. Uh, During Old Testament times, priests had several responsibilities the most important of which was offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Priests were the only ones whom God permitted to offer sacrifices. In addition, only the priests were able to go into a special room within the temple compound called the holy place. And so, priests had unique access to God and functioned essentially as intermediaries between God and the rest of the Israelite people. And it's intriguing that in what we just read in Exodus 19, God expressed a desire for the Israelites not just to have a priesthood, but to actually be, if you remember the phrase, a kingdom of priests. Meaning that every one of them would be a priest. Now, obviously, that was never fulfilled in the Old Testament, But we do find that fulfilled in the New Testament, as we can clearly see here in verse 9 of our main passage. Every Christian 
is a part of this royal priesthood. We all have direct access to God and are able to enter his holy presence and enjoy the closest of relationships with him. Yet notice in the text uh, that we are a part not just of any priesthood, but of specifically a royal priesthood. Now, this is something that's actually strikingly different than what we find in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the priestly line was completely separate from the royal line. Priests came from the tribe of Levi, while kings came from the tribe of Judah. And so nobody was able to be both a king and a priest in Israel. It was impossible. Yet the Bible teaches that Jesus actually fulfills both offices. Jesus is identified in numerous places as the ultimate fulfillment of the offices of both priest and king. And since Christians have been united with Jesus, guess what? We also enjoy the privilege not only of ministering as priests, but also of reigning as royalty. This is also confirmed in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, and Revelation 20, verse 6. We won't read those passages, but in both of them, just know that we find statements of Christians being both priests and also reigning as royalty. We find both of those statements side by side in both of those passages. And then moving forward a bit more quickly now, Peter also says that Christians comprise a holy nation. And this is actually completely identical uh, with uh, what, the way God described Israel in Exodus 19. And it speaks of the fact that just as Israel was separate and set apart to God in the Old Testament, Christians are separate and set apart to God in the New Testament. That's what the word holy means. And finally, Peter refers to Christians as a people for his own possession. And that is, of course, for God's own possession. Again, Peter's employing the language of Exodus 19, where God calls the Israelites his treasured possession among all peoples. The term translated possession in 1 Peter often referred to acquiring a piece of property through the payment of a price. For example, if someone might purchase a field and be said to have acquired possession of that field. Likewise, Christians also, you can probably see where this is going, right? Christians also have been purchased, but not with money. As Peter reminded us back in 1 Peter 1.18, that you were ransomed, another transactional word, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In a manner of speaking, Jesus paid the price for us with his own blood through his death on the cross. Our sins deserve God's judgment. But Jesus endured the full force of that judgment 
in our place on the cross. He paid the ultimate price to rescue us from our sins before being raised from the dead three days later. As a result, we now belong to him. In the words of verse 9, we're a people for his own possession. And friends, I can't think uh, of anything else that satisfies our desire for belonging as much as that right there. You know, so it seems like one thing that we all have in common is a desire to belong to something, to belong to a, a certain group, maybe. And you can see that, a desire for belonging, pretty much from middle school onward. In fact, it's often uh, the most obvious in middle school, right? Kids from that age group are continually, it seems, trying to figure out how they can fit in with their peers. You know, thinking back, one of the ways I tried to fit in with uh, a certain group in middle school was by wearing a ridiculous amount of hair gel in my hair. I mean, if you'd seen me, you'd have thought someone just dumped a bucket of water on my head. And yeah, I would spend, uh, it's a lot different from now where I just dry off with a towel, right? Uh, that's how I know if my hair is too long. If it takes more time, uh, more intervention to do my hair than drying off with a towel, I know I got to cut it, right? It's a lot different back then. I would spend, no joke, 20 to 40 minutes every morning putting that stuff in my hair because it had to be just right. You know, the, the, the spikes of hair that came down over my forehead, they had to be formed perfectly because if they weren't, I mean, my coolness factor for that day would be seriously diminished. Like, it, it would throw me off the whole day. Like, that's how important it was for me to be accepted uh, among my peers and to feel like I belonged to that group. And, and even though that desire for belonging might be especially obvious among middle schoolers. Make no mistake, adults have that, that same desire. Like, we want to feel like we belong. And usually our desire for belonging is oriented toward a particular group, usually people who are a lot like us. So, you know, the business leader wants to be respected and accepted among fellow business leaders. The university professor wants to be esteemed by their university colleagues. The union laborer wants to be uh, accepted by fellow union laborers. In fact, they're often called a, what, a brotherhood, right? A term of belonging, the, the brotherhood of the labor union. And also, it doesn't have to be career-related. The homeschooling mom wants other homeschooling moms to accept her into their circle. The person who goes to the gym every day wants to fit in with others at the gym. The college student wants to be accepted by others in their fraternity or sorority. The athlete wants to have a sense of belonging and be respected by others on their team. And yes, the devoted political activist is often seeking a sense of belonging in whatever political movement they've identified themselves with. So just about everyone has a desire to belong, and usually to belong to a particular group or movement. And yet what we read here in 1 Peter is a great reminder for us that the greatest and deepest way in which our desire for belonging can be fulfilled is 
in God. And the fact that he has paid the price to redeem us from our sins so that we're now, as Peter says, a people for his own possession, right? We belong to him and are forever and irrevocably included among that that people. And so those are the privileges that Christians enjoy. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. And again, all of those are drawn from the Old Testament. Peter is taking the privileges that were originally meant for Israel and is applying them to the church. And uh, that raises a, a huge theological question that might be in the minds of, of some of them, maybe the more theologically sensitive here. And that question is, has the church now replaced Israel as God's chosen people? Right? Has God essentially cast Israel aside and instead replaced them with the church so that it would now be appropriate to refer to the church as the new Israel. There are many who would argue uh, that very thing and who would point especially to 1 Peter 2.9 here as a key biblical passage that teaches that view. And yet I don't think that's exactly uh, the meaning of this verse. Peter isn't saying that, that the church has replaced Israel, but simply that the church now enjoys many of the same blessings that Israel enjoyed. Uh, In Romans 11, which I think is a very clear chapter, Paul speaks of it as the Gentiles or non-Israelites being grafted into the vine, as it were, and coming to share in the privileges and blessings that belong to the people of God. So to state it differently... Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and God still has plans for them in the New Testament, right? We learn later in Romans 11 that there's going to be a massive revival among the Israelites in the future, in which the vast majority of them will turn to God and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. So even though Israel is no longer front and center in the New Testament, God still has plans for them. The focus in the New Testament, though, is indeed on the church, which is comprised of believing Israelites and believing Gentiles brought together to form the one people of God. So again, the church hasn't replaced Israel. Instead, believing Gentiles have been grafted into the vine of believing Israelites in order to form the one people of God, which is the church. So there you go. Centuries of debate in church history just resolved in under three minutes. And uh, even if that entire debate kind of makes your head spin, or even if you do disagree with me, one thing hopefully we can all appreciate is simply how rich and glorious these blessings are here in 1 Peter 2.9. I mean, to say that they're magnificent, friends, it would be an understatement. They are beyond magnificent. They're nothing less than astounding. Brothers and sisters, this 
is how much God loves us. He loves us so much, he allows us to enjoy these privileges and blessings and even sent his own son to purchase all of this for us on the cross. If there is one thing that we should take away from this verse, it's that right there. These privileges as an expression of the depth of God's love. And yet that's not all. As we continue reading in verse 9, we see that there's a purpose for which God's given us these privileges and a result he expects them to have in our lives. Look once more at what Peter writes. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's a purpose statement, right? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, God has saved us from our sins and given us these astonishing privileges so that we can proclaim his excellencies. Like that's the, the, the central calling that we have as Christians. And therefore, what should be central? in our lives, proclaiming God's excellencies, declaring with both our lips and our lives the greatness and glory of God. Now, that's why God created us in the first place, and we see here in 1 Peter, it's also why he redeemed us. So we could make known to all creation how great and glorious he is. Now, obviously, that's a lot different than the mindset we had before we became Christians, right? But that's a key element of what becoming a Christian is all about. We might say it's about experiencing a Copernican revolution of sorts. You know, before the Copernican revolution, of course, everyone thought that the planets all revolved around the earth. That was the the scientific consensus at the time. Yet because of the work of Nicholas Copernicus and several other scientists after him, the scientific community graciously, or or rather gradually, uh, began to accept the fact that everything revolves not around the earth, but around the sun. And so it was a, it seems common sense to us now, but it was a radical change in the way people viewed the universe, which is why it's called the Copernican Revolution. Similarly, becoming a Christian is about experiencing a Copernican revolution of sorts within our own hearts. Instead of us being the center of our universe, God becomes the center of our universe. Like everything in our lives begins to revolve around God, glorifying God. And not merely as a duty either, but rather it becomes our delight to glorify God. Or in the words of Peter, it becomes our delight to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we proclaim God's excellencies, and we do so in two ways. 
Most fundamentally, we do that in worship. Right? We proclaim God's own excellencies back to him. Right? We praise him for his faithfulness. We marvel at his love. We thank him for the grace he's shown. We extol his, his wisdom and power and goodness and mercy. So we give him glory as the one who, as Peter says, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet we also proclaim God's excellencies, not only back to God himself in worship, but also to the people around us, especially to those who aren't yet Christians. We make known to them what God's done for us in rescuing us from our sins. And we seek to help them see just how glorious he is and know him as we've come to know him and love him as we've come to love him. If you've been a recipient of God's saving grace in the gospel, like there should be something within you that yearns to share that with others. In a very real sense, like it should be the most natural thing in the world for you to proclaim the excellencies of him who has done so much for you, him who has called you out of the darkness in which you once walked and into his marvelous light. By the way, when Peter speaks of God calling us in this way, he's referring to what's often referred to as uh, the effectual call to salvation. So theologians distinguish between God's general call to salvation and his effectual call. God's general call goes out generally to every single person in the world and invites them to put their trust in Jesus and be saved, right? It's an invitation open to everyone. So unfortunately, though, many people do ignore this general call. And yet there's also an effectual call that's directed only toward the elect. And this effectual call is always effective. God not only invites us to put our trust in Jesus, he also works in our hearts in such a way that we have an overwhelming desire to do that very thing. We might say that God's effectual call imparts to us all the grace, all the ability that's necessary in order for us to come to faith. And a good illustration of the effectual call to salvation is when Jesus called out to Lazarus to come out of his tomb. Lazarus uh, had died several days prior to that, we learn in John chapter 11, and had been in the tomb for uh, th those several days, buried. And yet when Jesus called him to come out, what happened? Well, life entered Lazarus' body, right? And he came out. That physical occurrence is a lot like what happens spiritually when God calls someone to salvation with an effectual call. And that's the kind of call Peter's talking about here in verse 9. And Peter says that God's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We were once in darkness in the sense that we were both spiritually ignorant and morally deviant. That is, we were unable to spiritually comprehend the truth of the gospel, and on top of that, we were enslaved by our own sinful desires. We were living in darkness. Truth be told, we were not only living in the darkness, we actually loved the darkness. That's what John 3, 19 through 20 tells us. It says that we, quote, loved the darkness rather than the light, end quote. And it goes on to say that we actually hated the light and refused to come to the light lest our sins be exposed. However, in his mercy, God called us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. And friends, let's never allow ourselves to forget just how marvelous this light truly is. You know, when it comes to physical light, some lights are obviously much brighter than others. And picture for a moment the light of a match. If you're in a very dark room, the light of a match might be sufficient for you to see where you're going a little bit. However, the light of the match is nowhere near as helpful as the light of a decent LED flashlight. The flashlight will certainly help you see much better and much further than the light of a match will. And yet, the light of an LED flashlight is really nothing when compared to the lights that we find on a football stadium. And the lights of a football stadium, in turn, are nothing when compared with the blinding light of the sun. And I think that's helpful as we seek to understand just how marvelous this light of the gospel truly is. You know, there are many other places in which the people in our society are searching for illumination. Many of them are seeking the light that comes through education, which is good and fine. Uh, Others are seeking the light which comes through philosophical reasoning, which can offer some insight. Others are seeking the light, supposedly, that comes from meditation or mindfulness. Yet in reality, any light that we ever get through our own unaided efforts is at its very best going to be no better than the light of a match. Whereas the light that we have in the gospel, dear friends, is brighter than the sun. It truly is a marvelous light. A light that makes every other kind of light seem like nothing in comparison. And when the Holy Spirit shines this light into our hearts, we can see for ourselves how marvelous It truly is. And we just wonder how we never saw it before. And so praise God, he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that darkness was indeed a dreadful darkness, but hopefully that helps us appreciate even more 
how marvelous this light is. You know, it'd be similar to someone who had been born blind receiving some kind of surgery that helps them see. And even to see a brightly lit, cloudless day for the very first time. Can you imagine that? Having been blind for your entire life, never seeing a bit of light, and then going out on a cloudless day right at noontime and seeing the sun illuminate everything. What a wonderful and glorious sight that would be. And for those of us who are Christians, that is the sight we have as redeemed sinners, as those whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a wonderful thing. Peter then continues to contrast what we were in the past with what we are now. In verse 10, he writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God for the mercy we've received. And I want to emphasize this morning that if you haven't yet received this mercy, it's available for you. In fact, all of the privileges and blessings we've talked about this morning are available for you. God is inviting you to partake of them. If you will only stop trying to live life your own way and instead turn your life over to Jesus and put your trust exclusively in Jesus to rescue you from your sins, even, even today, 